jump into Second Peter. And I'm excited, and some of you are probably excited too, because this is the last Sunday in First and Second Peter. And, and, and I say that because it's been a long journey. I think we started in November. Uh, so about 26 weeks, we took a little break at Christmas time and we took a little break at Easter. But other than that, we've been straight plowing through first and second Peter and we're coming to a close. And it was a helpful thing for me to step back and say, what has happened in the life of our church since we started this study? So one of the things that really excites me is that uh, since we began this study, by the end of today, we will have baptized right at 25 people in these weeks we've been studying the books of First and Second Peter. And that means 25 people standing and proclaiming publicly that Jesus is their Savior, that He has died for their sins and rose again. And so I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. Amen. We have seen uh, several new life groups start. We've seen several life groups grow to the point that they multiplied and started new groups. And we're excited about those things. We've started a new kind of initiative in our children's ministry program, the Gospel Project, where we're for three years telling the story of the Bible, pointing it at every step to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how it looks forward to what Jesus would do. So a lot of things have happened in this time that we've been in First and Second Peter. We even changed our schedule, I think. And all of you were able to find your way back. And I am duly impressed with that. And uh, we're excited about what the future holds for us. Next week, we'll focus particularly on Graduation Sunday and then you get some more information about what's coming next. But I hope that this time in First and Second Peter has been an encouragement to you. I hope that it has encouraged you to stand firm in the midst of a world that is consistently pressing in on the faith, enticing us to chase after sin or simply just duck our heads and neglect the mission that Jesus has given us. And so my prayer, as Peter's was, and you'll see today, is that we would begin and continue to grow in the grace of Jesus until he returns. So let's pray and then we'll read Peter's closing words to the churches there in modern day Turkey. Father God, we pray that you would continue to be with us. We praise you for the blessings we have seen during our time in First and Second Peter. We thank you for giving your word to us as a guide, as a source of hope, as a light that we cling to in the midst of the darkness. And I pray that today we would come to your word, not seeking simply to know more, but seeking to know you. And that our longing and our desire for you would grow, that our thirst for your son's return would grow, and that it would radically shape who we are here and now and every day until the day of eternity. We pray that your spirit would move mightily in this place, that he would be unrestricted by anything, and that we would lay our hearts bare before him. We pray that he would bring salvation to those who are lost, comfort to those who are suffering, strength to those who are weak, and hope to those who are in despair. And we ask you to do this because we know that the same spirit that arose Jesus from the dead is at work in this place today. And so we come before you in humble expectation that you would move. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe we can just begin simply by reading Paul's farewell to the churches. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, 
Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so I love Peter's final words to these churches. I believe this is the last thing that Peter wrote that finds its way into the scriptures. He's, he's done. He's close to death. He's let us know that. And so he writes these final words. And this letter was intended to stir the church up, to strengthen and encourage them to stand firm. Not to be unstable, not to be fruitless, not to be wavering, but to stand firm in the faith. To be rooted and grounded and fruitful, glorifying Christ until the day of his return. And he begins this kind of final segment with with this summary statement where he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these. Since you're waiting for these things. And so we have to look up again to the previous texts to find out what we're waiting for. And what he tells us that we're waiting for is this amazing reality of Jesus' return. According to the promise, waiting to a new heavens and a a new earth. And he says, a place where righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for in verses 16 and 17. And so he says, I want to remind you of what you're waiting for. And since you're waiting for these things, there's a way that you're expected to live. So you're waiting for Christ's return, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 tells that story so vividly. As he looks to the coming of Jesus, Peter, excuse me, John sees this vision. And this is what he says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away the tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Since you're waiting for these things, well, what things? The new heavens, the new earth, that that Jesus will return and he's a king and he will bring with him a kingdom. And in that kingdom, the old way of things has, has ended. 
And so what's the old way of things? It's pain and death and hardship and suffering. That way of things is over when Jesus returns and he ushers in a new era where we are fully and completely satisfied in God. That all of our longings and cravings and thirst that we chase after sin with will be rightly directed towards Him. And He will be with us and be our God and we will be His sons and daughters. That's the depiction. He says, since you're waiting for that day. Since you're waiting for Jesus' return. There's a way that you should live today. That's our motivation. We're to live in anticipation of that day, regardless what it costs us. When speaking of the kingdom, Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 tells a a couple little simple illustrations. In Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So I want you to think about this is that the scriptures have just told us what the coming of the kingdom is like. This place of no more suffering or mourning or weeping, no more death or oppression, no more thirsts or hunger. That it's all done when Jesus returns. He says, this is what's coming And then Jesus tells us that reality, the kingdom coming is so great that that it's like, it's like a man who, who was wandering through a field and stumbled on a chest full of treasure. It's like a merchant who was in search of pearls who found the greatest, most valuable, beautiful pearl in all the world. And in their joy, notice this, in their joy, they sold everything to have it. We talked about this in in our Sunday school class today. There's two things I want you to see in these stories. The first is their value they place on the treasure that they have found. It's worth everything to them. It's worth everything. You see that? In his joy, he sold everything. But I I, want to point out the subtlety that you could miss is that it costs everything. He had to sell everything to get the treasure. But it was worth everything. And and this is what Peter's telling us is that there's a day coming. And if you'll just hold firm to him, it's worth it. No matter what you're going to endure, no matter what the hardship, no matter what the ridicule, though they may kill you, Jesus says, it is worth it. Though it costs you everything. And since you're waiting for that day and since his coming is of such great value. I want you to live differently. And so motivated by Christ's coming, he gives us a few ways that we should live. And I want you to see them. Back in Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 14, he says to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Can I, I just point out, he says to be diligent This is going to take continual, persistent effort. I don't care what Amy Grant's song on KSBJ says. This is going to take work. I mean, have you ever told anyone to be diligent about something that was easy? 
hey, I want, I want you guys to be diligent in eating junk food and hanging out by the pool this summer. Is that what you tell your high school kids? Guys, you be diligent in that. And when I come home, if a whole bag of Cheetos isn't gone, and there's not evidence of the Cheetos in the pool, you weren't diligent. No, we tell people to be diligent about things that take effort. It's going to be hard. So be diligent. Now, here, the beautiful thing about this is that the effort and strength required is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's not our effort. So we're not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and going to try harder. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is in us and that we have these amazing resources from God to live in victory over sin, Satan, and death. So everything we need for life and godliness, he's given to us. Peter's already taught us that. But now you've been given those resources. Now use them. Be diligent. So what are we to be diligent to do? Well, he says you should be without spot or blemish and at peace. To be found with him pure and holy. So walking in obedience. Walking in faithfulness to his commands. Not because you have to, but because he's your father and you love him and you desire to please him. Because you recognize that His commands on you are for your joy. That His rules and restrictions are not about robbing you of fun, but rather about protecting you from the devastation and carnage of sin. And God wants you to walk in the fullness of joy. John 15 tells us, so so follow Him faithfully. Obedient. Without spot or blemish. Additionally, when you read through Second Peter in chapter 2, when addressing false teachers, Peter referred to them as spots or blemishes on the body. So I think part of what he's carrying over is to, to stay grounded in the truth and not to begin to waver into false teachings. So we trust the scripture. We follow it and we obey it. But it's going to take vigilance and it's going to take effort. That's why Peter writes these letters. Because it's not easy. Because we need to be corrected. We need to be taught. We need to be drawn back. The scriptures say that the wounds of a righteous man are a blessing. We need to be corrected. We need to be taught. This is going to take work. So we're to live diligent lives of godliness. Verse 14 tells us. 14 through 17 is going to tell us we should live diligent lives in in a relationship to sound teaching. If you look in verse 14 again, it says, Beloved, since you're waiting for things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. As our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. And I love this. Though some of these things are hard to understand. Can we just say amen? Anybody read Paul's writings? Hard to understand. Can I just throw on the table, if you ever have that feeling, and you're reading the Bible, and particularly the Apostle Paul, but not just him, and you, I'm not sure what he's getting at, that the Apostle Peter, who studied directly under Jesus for three years, who, inspired by God, preached at Pentecost, saw thousands of people converted, and then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually wrote books of the Bible. Like, this guy says, I read Paul's stuff, I don't get it all. Now, what he does tell us is that it is Scripture. It is Scripture. It's from God. It's to be received as authoritative, as as God's Word, having bearing and weight on our lives more than anything. So, don't, don't miss that, that he's saying it's hard to understand. He's not saying don't worry about it. He's saying hold tight to it, even when you don't understand it. 
You know, we're going to be held accountable to God, I think, largely for the scripture that we did understand it did not apply. Now, do, do we need to, to dig hard and try to understand the Bible's teachings? Absolutely. But what we do know, let's commit first to apply that. Simply the, rather than just acquiring knowledge that we never intend on using. But we're to cling tight to the words of Scripture. Even though we can't always understand it. To be watchful of those who twist the Scripture. That's Peter, again, throughout Second Peter has told us false teachers are a reality. So be on the alert. Be watchful for things that sound to be new in the faith. So uh, a new kind of Christian is ultimately just kind of an old kind of heretic. And I want you to understand those things. Is that a new teaching is really not new. It's something that we've probably dealt with in the past and said, man, that's way off base. So you hear something that's not the obvious plain teachings of the Bible. I mean, it's one thing to hear something that sounds new because maybe, maybe you haven't been discipled a certain way or, or maybe, you know, we all come from different traditions in the faith where there's different emphasis put on different things. So we will at times read the Bible and hear things that sound new to us. But the question is, when I really look at the scriptures, is this obvious and apparent? If it takes a substantial interpretive grid or key to figure it out, or some mathematical formula, we're going to say that's beyond the obvious teaching of Scripture. If a calculator is required, we've gone into the gray area. If there's a code and we have a grid where we can lay on top of the Bible and pick letters out, we're not in the gray area anymore. We're just crazy. But the obvious teachings of Scripture, something out of line with those things. You want to be cautious, not only to receive them and base your life upon those teachings, but also because what we receive is true, we repeat. And all of us, as sinful people, have a desire to pursue our sin and tell ourselves that God is okay with it. Be cautious of that, not only for others, but also yourself. I will point out that the value of the community of faith is so important here because we're blind to our own blind spots. That's why they call them blind spots. We can't see them. And so having a small group of people who love you, who love Jesus, that are part of your life to help coach you along to say, hey, I'm kind of seeing this in you. And, and I'm concerned about you. So maybe we could talk about whether or not that's really faithfulness to the Lord. That's Essential for us. So be on guard. Be diligent and committed to sound teaching. Verse 15, there's a hidden gem in here. I want you to see that. He tells us, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Earlier on in Second Peter, he's told us that God isn't slow in the return of Christ and bringing about his promise, but he's patient because there's these men and women who are sinful that God has set in his heart to redeem and save, and he's going to save them. He's not going to let them slip. And in John 6, Jesus says, all who have been given to him are his and none will fall out of his hand. So God is doing a work today, and that work is the salvation of the souls of sinful men and women. And God's patient while he brings that about, and he says, hey, as you endure hardship, there's something you need to know God's being patient so that he will lead others to salvation as well he also tells us what God's up to in the world you ever ask that question like what in the world is God doing well the answer is he's saving sinners 
And so I just want to throw on the table, if that is what God is doing as his people, what should be the predominant kind of defining purpose of our lives? The salvation of the lost. Now, am I saying that it doesn't matter how you live, you don't need to learn the Bible? I'm not saying any of those things. Rather, I'm saying that you learning and growing in godliness and learning what the Bible says is not just about you doing those things. It's about you being released for the mission to be used by God to do the, to lead others to Christ. See, one of the things you, you see here, this kind of trend that's running through the second part of Second Peter is, is a commitment to reiterating over and over that Jesus is coming and calling the church to holiness. Right, he answers the question earlier in chapter 3, since Jesus is coming, and since the whole world's going to be dissolved, how, how should we live? Well, we should live lives of holiness and godliness. So what does it mean to be holy? And I think there's just a huge lack of understanding about holiness running around. So I took a survey, non-scientific, asked some people in my small group. And we said a couple things, and this is consistent with what I've heard before, that holiness is often used as a negative term. Not so much in Christian circles, although at times someone is holier than thou. Oh, so-and-so so holy. And so it's a negative term that's often portrayed against those who, for whatever reason, aren't participating in whatever uh, the sin of the world is. Or maybe we have a certain attitude towards people that rubs them the wrong way, and so they'll throw that word. But largely in Christian circles, when we talk about holiness, we're talking mostly about moral purity, right? We're holy, we're not sinning. And so holiness, in this sense, is largely defined by what we don't do. Here's a list of things you shouldn't do, and if you don't do them, that makes you holy. Except it misses the entire point of holiness in the Bible, which is simply this, being set apart. The opposite of holy is common. So to say something is holy is to say that God has set it apart for a special purpose. And so when we talk about holiness as moral purity, which that's part of it, we're only talking about the separateness. We don't talk about why we have been separated. Does that make sense? It's being set apart, but it's not just set apart to be set apart. There's a purpose behind it. I want you to see that. Go back in your Bibles just a little bit. In chap in First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So you've been chosen by God. You're his. You're set apart as distinct and special. These are his words to the church. A holy nation. A people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I want you to see in First Peter 2 what holiness encompasses. It says, you are a royal priesthood. You're a people that God has brought to himself to be his. So you've been taken from the world and its sinfulness, separated in that sense, but set apart for something. To be his people for his possession and for his purpose. Namely, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. Living lives for his glories that other might see and respond in the same way. This is not a new idea in First Peter. It's rather a continuation of what God had said to the people of Israel back in Leviticus 20. So if you want to go to Leviticus 20, I believe it's verse 26, you'll see again, he says... You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples. For what purpose? That you'll be mine. 
Later in Leviticus, he's going to say that you might be a people, a nation of priests. So now what's the role of a priest? A priest goes before God in intercession on behalf of the people. And a priest goes before the people on behalf of God, pleading with them to turn to him. So he said Israel was supposed to be that. Now they weren't that. And so, so one of the things that happens is that Jesus now, having fulfilled all the promises and taking all the blessings, giving those to the church, says you now have that same sense of identity. A nation, a kingdom of priests. So to be holy is not just to have a list of sins that you don't do, but is rather more than just that, living a life that is passionately consumed with the purpose he set us apart for. So let me make this ridiculously simple. If we are not actively making disciples, actively sharing our faith in Christ, we are not and will not be practically holy. I don't care how relatively moral you are or how much you know about the Bible. You're a nice guy who knows the Bible who is not holy if you're not committed to the mission. Because missional living is embedded into what God has set us apart for. He didn't set us apart just to be set apart. Otherwise, we would just go build a compound. People have done that. It usually goes badly. He set us apart to send us back in. To engage the world around us and the world across the ocean from us with the gospel, proclaiming Jesus as the only means of salvation. And not only leading people to faith in Christ, but walking them to maturity so that they can join the army taking the gospel to the nations. Holiness and mission cannot be separated. Not if you read the Bible. So we live diligent lives committed to the mission. And finally, he tells us to keep growing. Just keep growing. So look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and until the day of eternity. Amen. So let me just, again, I want to throw the obvious, kind of the bottom shelf observation here. If the Bible is telling us to keep growing, I want you to understand that means we need to keep growing. So wherever it is you think you are on the maturity spectrum, wherever it is I think I am on the maturity spectrum, I continue to have patterns of sin that will cause problems for me and cause problems for those who follow me. And I need to continue to repent of those things. I will continue to walk in a lack of the depth of understanding of God's grace for me in Jesus. And I need to grow in that. I need to press into that. I need to grow. You need to grow. So none of us will ever get to the point in our Christian life where we just, we get put a stake in the ground and say, mature, done. When you run into that, and it plagues churches where we have everyone that assumes that they're the maturest person in the room. And what we reveal when we have that attitude is our immaturity. It is our lack of understanding of our sin and our lack of understanding of the immensity of God's grace required to even be near us when we believe that we're phenomenal and awesome and everyone else 
is immature. I know what it's like to fall into that. And I'm telling you. When you see yourself there. It's the immediate moment for me that the Holy Spirit kicks me in the gut and says, you're nowhere near where you think you are. We all need to keep growing. We all need those who love us, who will instruct us, who will correct us, even though it hurts. Because we're not mature in the sense that we're done. We have not been perfected. On our best days, we are riddled with the vestiges of our sin nature. So we've got to keep growing. And we, we don't just grow by doing the right thing. We grow in His grace. And our experience of receiving His grace as we're more aware of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. We grow in the extending of His grace as we learn how to forgive and learn to walk in humility with others. We grow in our willingness to forgive. We grow in our worship of God who has saved us through His Son, Jesus. We grow in our desire to share this Jesus with the world around us. We all need to grow. None of us are complete. And so he says, I want you to keep growing. And and how long should we keep growing? Until he comes back. Until he returns or he takes you home. There's no end date in this. And and, and what what I want us to talk about for a moment is if we're going to live this kind of life, right? If we're going to be these kinds of people that are, that are diligent in, in our commitment to walking in purity before the Lord, diligent in our commitment to sound teaching, diligent in our commitment and passion for the mission, diligent in continuing to grow until He returns, I want you to see what this whole thing hinges on. It, the whole thing is motivated and fueled by our anticipation, our longing for His coming. I read an article on CNN the other day that was just part of the religion blog, which you get some interesting stuff there, to be honest. Uh, and, and the article was from an evangelical pastor who was simply pointing out how, how rarely we talk about heaven in the American church. They, they did some surveys where they, they found that, you know, we, we didn't really talk about eternity very much. That, that the American church, and I get it, is largely consumed with what's happening today. And so I've got, I've got problems today, right? Like, um, I've got a kid that I've got to discipline or raise, and I need to know how to do that. I've got finances that are a mess, I've got to figure out how to fix that. Or I've got marital issues, I've got to figure out how to fix that. We have all these issues that face us. And it's said that the majority of teaching, preaching, writing in the Christian kind of world today is issue-focused and that very little is directed about heaven. And when it is, it's usually not even biblical teaching. It's like some kid had a near-death experience and so he's going to write a book. Now, I'm not saying the book's bad, I haven't read it. I'm just saying uh, the nine-year-old's probably not expositing the Bible. So very little time from Christian leaders committed to talking about the return of Jesus. And, and it's so funny what the reason most people gave that they didn't talk about it is because, well, it just seems kind of like a joke to our world. Does that make any sense resonate with what Peter told us it would be? That people would look at our hope and they'd scoff and it'd be funny to them. So all, the answer is to be relevant. We don't talk about Jesus coming. No wonder when we look at surveys about the church, we're no different from our culture. We've taken the hope and accountability of the Christian faith, and we've talked about that for years, Hart. But he's coming back, and, and all this way of living, of commitment and passion and diligence and drive, all of this, Peter says, hinges 
on our waiting and longing for his coming. So if you take that off the table, if the master's not coming back, we do whatever we want. You take that off the table. If there's, if there's nothing greater than today's suffering, just medicate with whatever you got. But when we put on the table that the master is returning, that there is accountability, when we put on the table that there's a day coming that's far better by exponential means than anything we've ever suffered here, all of a sudden now, we know what we're fighting for. We know why we're in this. And we know that there's hope and a promise. And so my... My question for us is, do we long for his coming? Like, do we? And what I have found in conversations, what I found in my own life, is that we rarely long for his coming. And the reason we do is our lives are so comfortable. But what we've committed ourselves to is ultimately creating heaven on earth outside of Jesus' return. And so we're kind of filling the void with, with things we think will help. So, hey man, uh, part of this life is that our bodies kind of deteriorate and decay. Hey man, get you some plastic surgery, we'll fix that problem. Well, you can look like you did at 18, whatever you want to look like. Did you know, this is amazing, I'm going to pick on the ladies because this is, this is amazing. I can get bicep implants. Where I can appear like a man who's been in the gym without ever actually going to the gym. We, we can do all these things to kind of give prop up whatever we're lacking, whatever we think it is. That we're always looking for this next trick to make life perfect and easy and comfortable. Buy the next product. And, and we've, we've medicated ourselves with the comforts of this world so much so that we've forgot even what longing feels like. And largely, we don't experience it until the rug is completely pulled out from under us. So when I get to sit with families going through cancer treatments and hear what's going on and pray with them, or, or, or sit with a family that's, that's lost a loved one, then, then all of a sudden, now we get longing rising up, right? Because no matter how hard we try, we, we can't medicate these things away. They're realities of life. Suffering, mourning, death, and dying. That is the way of things here. And the promise of Jesus' return is that that way of things will be wiped away. And all things will be made new. And so my challenge to you is, when you start to sense those longings, that things are busted, that things are broken, do everything within your power to let that soak in. Because what it's going to do is cause you to turn to Christ more deeply. Don't medicate with nonsense. Whatever it is. Whether it's stuff or relationships or food or whatever it is. Run to Jesus. Because he's coming back. And our longing and desire for his return. Is what's going to motivate us to walk in a way that will please him. It's what's going to give us the drive to walk in a way that will be a part of the mission. And my fear for us is that we will chase comfort at all costs and in doing so rob ourselves of the joy of his coming. Rob ourselves of the joy of anticipation of his coming. 
We'd be like the kid who, who, who tried to get all their Christmas presents early or sneak a peek and find out what all they were, all of them were and then didn't really have the anticipation of Christmas Sunday because, because they had ruined it for themselves. And in our seeking of comfort, we rob ourselves of that anticipation and the joy that comes with us as we consider His coming. Because He will come back. And no matter what the cost, it will be worth it when he returns. My prayer for each of us is that we would count the cost. And that we, like the man who bought the field and the man who bought the pearl, would sell everything. Give up everything to pursue him and his kingdom. Whatever that means, whatever Jesus says, our answer is yes. Not out of some legalistic obedience, but because in our joy we've seen the prize before us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the promise of your son's return. We thank you for the day that all things come to you. And we thank you that you have not left us to wander in the darkness, but you have shared your word to us to give us hope and strength and passion to remind us that we will give an account and that whatever the cost, the kingdom is worth it. Lord, I pray that because of that, we would stand firm in our faith, living lives of of diligence in terms of walking in purity and rejecting sin, that we would live lives of diligence and commitment to sound teaching, lives of diligence and commitment to the mission, and that we would be diligent in continuing to grow in the experience of, of knowing your grace and extending it to others. And that in doing that, until your son returns, that you would receive all glory and honor in our lives before this lost world. In Jesus' name, amen.